Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Okay, guys, um, sit back and enjoy. This is episode 23 uh, of the Sheep Things podcast. Today, we got Dr. Parker again, and um, we're discussing marketing, uh, trends within the industry, and, and what he's seen over the years, and, and what he sees uh, going forward that, that us as producers should be paying attention to, and, and some closing remarks about uh, the history of of the breeds and, and all the breeds that he's been associated with and, and some of the things that, uh, that he's most proud of. So enjoy our conversation uh, with Dr. Parker. Yeah, definitely. Well, the one thing about the South now, you've got a sheep that, that'll be productive and it never existed before, Katahdin's. Oh, absolutely. They had, uh, there was a 10, 10 year study made I think they reported it in 1986, 10 years, 10 different uh, states. And the Florida native was the only one that was re really adapted at all. It, but it didn't have a lamb crop percent that was very high. And, and I, uh, I could probably eat one of them by myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the folks in Mississippi said, well, sure, you're Share, share your wool sheep twice a year in order to keep them adaptive. And a lot of those fall lambing sheep, uh, they were affected, their size was affected, and uh, all kinds of problems because of the temperature and the sheep adaptation to that temperature was nil. And then uh, now you don't hear a thing about that. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's where the, that's where the came in with their hair genetics and eliminated that environmental problem altogether. And now the South has a sheep that they can make money from. Yeah. So what do you think are the, the key parts of um, Mr. Peel's vision and his innovation in developing the breed? I mean, what are the, the key elements of that do you think have contributed to success? Do you think it's, it's simply the the fact that they don't need to be sheared. Do you think it's just the combination of of crossing um, with the the other breeds? Um, what have made I mean, what's made Katahdin's such a success? And and I guess a follow up with that would be what are maybe some of the things that Katahdin breeders have done that have made it such a success, especially in the South. Well, I I think Peel's so called dream of a woolless sheep for meat was interesting. I can't, 
I can't define or I can't offer exactly why he decided to feel that way about it. I don't know. And I've never heard anyone address that relative to having known him. But um, he was on the right track. Whether he had a vision that could reach as far as it has, I sort of doubt it. So it must have been just something that maybe he didn't care for wool. (laughs) And uh, that allowed him to do that. But then after, after you got the basis there from like Heifer Project International, they, they laid a big foundation in addition to what Mrs. Peel already had in place. And then you started putting those together, and then with the way that the things were done early on is that the sheep were evaluated before they could be registered early on mm-hmm. so that you were developing a more of a balanced confirmation, a balanced, they, had, they didn't have much wool or any wool at all, and you were getting a type that was becoming more uniform because of the way they were being evaluated before they could be accepted for registration. So that yeah. kind of closed the extremes to something that was a model for the breed. And I think that took took a lot of the variation out that we haven't had in some of the earlier uh, new breeds didn't do it that way. But then when we got to looking at lamb crop percent and genetic values for parasite resistance and all that, uh, that kind of of took everything. That's where all your profit lies. You don't have to treat them for parasites and they'll raise you. In some cases, three lamb crops in two years where you could have a 300% lamb crop. Uh, it opens up the door for a lot of a lot of great management. Yeah, definitely. So, and some of these, some of these, uh, the other thing that happened was that this ethnic market comes on and they don't want those 140-pound fat lambs. They want those lambs anywhere from, some of them as little as 40, 45, up to, maximum of 110, and you don't have to have a giant sheep to produce that. So that that's another plus. And uh, that way you can finish a lamb on grass in a lot of cases without ever having to add any grain to the diet to get, to get it to that market that'll sell. Like in New Holland over there, why, you know, that market in Pennsylvania, that's, that's that's kind of like the one in San Angelo, Texas. It's hot all the time. You know, that uh, I've seen some, and this is kind of, I don't know, off subject, but it, it, it kind of it bothers me to a degree, is um, at the Tennessee sale we had, and, and, and it, the same thing happened uh, in New Holland. I've been to it twice, and I was out in Gothway, Texas back in uh, probably February and and went to to their weekly sheep sale same thing happens there um there's always you know these like in t- at the tennessee sale there was a group of probably 40 or 50 lambs come through that weighed you know 36 pounds and of course you know everybody all oh, those are katahdins so in everybody's mind we got this little dinky sheep 
because that's what <laughs> showed up at the sale barn. And uh, yeah, well. I don't know how how these guys, you know, of course, those are really small, uh, small animals, but uh, I mean, golly, 36 pounds. That, there was, I bet there was probably a hundred that went through that weighed under 40 pounds. Well, well, they must've been too young. I, I don't if know. They were I mean, decent, decent I, breeding bred Cantadans, they wouldn't be very old. No, I mean, mine, you know, I weaned mine at 60 days and I want them to be 45 to 65 pounds on grass and milk. Yeah. You know? Right. And, uh, I mean, right. <laughs> a 30 pound lamb, I'm like, how do you guys do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, it does hurt. I don't imagine that's days. probably the best managed flock in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, thinking about Texas, one of my favorite stories on parasites in Texas. There was a fellow that I met down there once, and I ended up calling Walk On Genetics. And he said the way he got took care of his parasite problems was in the early summer, it when it was hot, put those sheep out in the alleyway and get in his truck and with some feet and they'd follow him and those ewes that lagged behind and got the patent and carrying on and couldn't keep up the rest, he just cut them into the cutting pen and took them to sale. They were parasite problems. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, he hit it right on the nail. Yeah. I mean, uh, only about 25% of the sheep in a flock are bothered by parasites very much so he was yeah. picking on the 25 percent yeah but i call that walk on genetics <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what you know what can katahdin's and katahdin breeders do to kind of maintain their status in the south as you know kind of a leading a leading breed and 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 throughout the nation really um, but they've really taken off in the east and the south and the southeast and the midwest. Um, and and there's, they're making inroads out here in the west for sure, certainly on the Pacific coast. Um, what are some strategies that you would recommend to Katahdin breeders, or for that matter, any breeder? But we'll, we'll start with Katahdins and maybe go through a few different types of sheep. But what would be your, your maybe top couple recommendations for Katahdin breeders? Well, if I were a stud breeder, I'd, I'd certainly keep performance records. <clears throat> no question about that. And uh, I'd keep my eye on the market changes. And I'd become familiar with the environment I'm in and try to assess what would sell to people that might be interested in buying for, let's say, the beef cattle producer. And uh, I think I'd focus on what seems to be best for my potential customers. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I guess we're going to start talking more about, hopefully, in our Tennessee sheep producers is, you know, back to the ethnic market. You know, that changes every year. And uh, when it moves a week, a year, a week, a year, a week, a year, 
in two or three years, you've moved your entire marketing uh, finish time a month one way or the other. And um, I don't think people, you know, everybody does it like their daddy did it or their pa did it or whatever. We're going to lamb in January no matter what. We, and, and if your market is moving a week every year, uh, you better be flexible or you'll have sheep in the wrong time of year. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. I think you have to know your market and uh, uh, know how to take advantage of, of the price pricing uh, when the prices are best. Yeah. I, I grew up with, my father was a, a Marino man, I think I told you, and they're slow developing. And what he would do is he would put those lambs on grass, feed them through the winter, shear about 12 pounds off of them, six weeks, four weeks before Easter, sell them on the Easter market. Right. And they were about a year old, but they sold well. And that's, he could have sold them in the fall for feeder lambs and got practically nothing out of them because that's when everyone else is selling lambs. So you have to know your market and know how to, how to manage around it and make the most of it. Yeah, that's something I've, tr I've struggled with a little bit here, trying to be easy on me uh, and low input. You know, uh, if I lamb in, in March, uh, end of March, 1st of April, so that my lambs are, you know, being weaned at the, you know, at the time my pastures are, are ideal, I've done missed all the markets, you know. So... If I creep feed my lambs and I get them to finish quick, I don't have nowhere to go with them. It's the wrong time of year. And uh, yep. so, so everybody's all oh, you need to creep feed your lambs. Why? I don't have, what are you going to do with a creep fed lamb in July? You know, yep. um, <laughs> that's useless. So, so I try to leave them on pasture and I try to finish them. You know, I try to start working on them. 30, 45, 50 days ahead of when I plan to sell to put, you know, just a, a little bit of shape on them. Because if you get them too finished or too grow, too much growth on them, they're not worth nothing either. You know, it's, it's a, it is a tough yep. business. What's, what's the, uh, what's the top weight in, in your area for your sale? Oh, 70 to 85 pounds. Uh, once they get over 90, the, the price per pound drops drastically. Yeah. Um, well, you, could, you could probably pound almost lamb. get there. Yeah, 120 pounds. You could probably almost lamb. get there with a good forage with the right lambing date. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. you know, the 120-pound the lamb will almost bring as much as a 70-pound lamb, you know. Oh, yeah. But the other way to look at it is, is, you know, I've got plenty of forage. I'm doing summer annuals, so my input cost is low. So I'm trying to maximize my dollars, you know. Um, so it, it's a balancing act for sure. Well, forages are important, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. So I have a question for you. Um, well, I've had a lot of questions for you, but another question for you. Um, so, you know, working out here with a lot of, 
Idaho's producers and, and Western range producers always, you know, trying to think of different ways to, to help um, them succeed. Cause it's, it's certainly a tough industry to be in, especially right now. Um, you know, you worked a lot with the sheep experiment station and range operations and, and not only did you work with that flock, but I'm sure you, you know, were involved and talked with lots of other producers out here. Um, what would be your advice for range producers um, or, or n- not even just one piece of advice, but what are several different pieces of advice, things that you learned during your time out here, things that you see as the industry is changing? Um, how can they become more profitable in what they're doing to, to really be able to, to make a, a profit and, uh, and, and have a, a sustainable and, and profitable business? Um, given, you know, the current environment and the current, uh, you know, all the current challenges that face the industry from price, predators, parasites, uh, public lands, people, profits, um, you know, there's lots of different problems that, that the industry faces, but it's, it's an industry like you mentioned before that has a lot of potential for marketing meat. Um, what would be your recommendation to the individual producer with say, you know, one to five bands of, of range use grazing, grazing federal lands, how can they improve their operations? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly assess my market situation and make sure I was producing the kind of a lamb that would bring top dollar, both from a genetic and a management uh, standpoint. And uh, if it meant using forages at certain critical periods of time to do that, in addition to the range, or after the, moving from the range, uh, I think I would assess that. Alfalfa is a good crop, and you can do a lot with it out there, and you get a lot of growth. And uh, I've always had a lot of respect for alfalfa for finishing animals, at least. From a genetic point of view, like I mentioned earlier, I'd change that real quick. I wouldn't be living with a 50% lamb crop and losing 20% of my lambs and not even be able to sell uh, one lamb per you if I kept replacements. I don't think I could live on that. So I'd change my genetics pretty quick. And I'd yeah. uh, do it like I mentioned before. Um, that's that, those are the first things that come to mind, and the way you utilize the range is it depends on what kind of forages you have, and you know the, the quality of forages and all that, mm-hmm. and when they're available. Yeah, and so that has to be determined. And uh, but uh, this uh, fall lambing thing that I was telling you about. Uh, I would give that some pretty serious consideration, but in order to do it, I have to change the genetics. And uh, but I could get I could get away from using a lot of range land that way. I could use some cultivated forages to get those lambs pretty well long to market, and I could sell my lambs in at the best time of the year rather than in the fall, like most of them do. Yeah, and uh, if they don't finish their own lambs and they sell them in the fall, why well, that's probably the worst price they can get for them, on average. I expect yeah. you've observed that. 
Yeah. Yeah. All no, right, so definitely. I have a question on the fall lambing because that, that gets brought up a lot uh, in the Katahdin world. And uh, so uh, if I'm a 25 to 100 ewe flock guy and I want to split and have some fall genetics naturally, uh, you, you kept mentioning you'd change genetics, change genetics. You're, you're primarily talking about swapping breeds or adding other breeds. But if I'm wanting to stay a purebred Katahdin, is my best bet just to uh, pick the one or two lambs that will breed in the fall and building up that way? Um, or is there, I mean, I hear people doing different feed supplements to get them to breed in the fall. Uh, treating your rams different, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, if I wanted to stay in the purebred world, um, just start start with whatever will breed in the fall and then build from there? Is that is that my... I, the first thing I'd do is I'd find out, out of who's doing fall lambing. And uh, if they've been doing it very, very long, I'd, I'd get some fall-born twins and make sure they were twins because uh, that tells more than a fall born single and I'd start building my replacements for fall lambing that way I think that would be the quickest way because you're taking advantage of something that's already in place somewhere and there's some producers that are definitely doing that some of them are probably having three lamb crops in two years and so those those people are having some build up in the genetics for out of season breeding. That's okay, what I would so do. I've got a question that's happened to me personally. When I first started with sheep, I had four ewes in my backyard, and uh, I didn't know if I was going to like this sheep experiment. You know, after the angora goat uh, debacle, so so I had these ewes, and I I kept my ram in all the time. And um, I had them on a quarter acre lot. So I had a round bale of hay out year round. I was feeding them every day. And um, I could lamb any month of the year. Um, so I, I built my, once I decided I wanted to stay in the sheep, uh, I kept ewes from those ewes, of course, and I grew within. And uh, once I got about 20, 25 sheep, my quarter acre, I was tired of doing that. So I fenced off some pasture out where I had my cows and, and I turned those sheep out. Now I'm not lambing in the fall anymore. So there was something nutritional wise that I lost because genetically I had the exact same sheep. Nothing changed. I had the genetics, um, but, but I, I lost that, that fall lambing that I was enjoying when I had them in my backyard. Uh, so I know nutrition. Did, did you say the ram was in with them continuously? Yep. And uh, they were in your backyard, and what were they eating? They're just regular. They were. They were eating grass a, in the yard. Well, no, I, I ran out of grass in like a month, probably, and uh, so I, I was feeding them a round bale of fescue hay, and then uh, the co-op has a u developer. So that was what they got every day. Uh, so there was something nutrition-wise that I lost yeah. in that co-op feed that I was feeding uh, that I lost my fall lambing. Because genetically- That's nothing, interesting. 
That's interesting. I can't put my finger on that one. Well, I, I've spent four or five years chasing it, and I ain't found the finger yet either. <laughs> Other than going back to feeding, you know, and, and I don't want to feed my ewes year round, you know. Well, I, I think that's a, that's a good one for, for dreaming about. I don't know what the story is on that one. Yeah. Well, one, one thing I want to make sure that we do before we, before we finish here is, um, you know, you're a, a pretty humble guy and have told us a lot about what you've done. Um, but, um, I, I think it's important for everyone to realize the impact you've made and, and just on so many levels in the sheep industry. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, you were, uh, named an honorary member of the Katahdin Breed Association for, for all the work that you've done. And, um, you know, we're, we're certainly grateful for all that. And, um, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, what do you think your, your two or three biggest impacts have been on the sheep industry? And, and like, like I said, I know, I know you're a pretty humble guy, but please don't hesitate to uh, to share all the impact you've made because I really want our, our listeners to to really get that of how how much of an impact you've made. What do you, what do you what are your the two or three accomplishments that that you're most proud of um, in all the the work that you've done? Well, that's kind of an interesting question. I haven't reflected on that too much, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the first things I think that helped the entire industry was uh, putting electric fence in place. I remember when I told you about Willamette Valley and that's where they finished a lot of lambs, probably more than anywhere on grass anywhere. And they changed that in 10 years. And uh, even though there was an article in the, in the uh, sheep magazine that said that electric fence wouldn't work, uh, they heard, heard my story. But anyway, it works. Uh, moved on there and we we worked on some nutritional things that were fairly well adapted. I think the the uh, all concentrate lamb rations that we came up with, the pellet that we came up with was adopted by uh, Pipestone and, and uh, all their producers still use that, uh, and it was it was brand it's been uh, branded by a couple companies I think already, so it's still in the marketplace. Yeah, uh, I feel good about having been associated with the Katahdin breed. I think I recognized when we got our hair sheep and the the importance of genetics for parasite resistance that it would change sheep production, particularly in the South. And uh, I enjoyed that experience. So uh, those are those are the main things that I guess it comes to mind. Yeah. Well, again, we, I mean, I know I'm, I'm grateful, you know, as a first generation sheep farmer and a first generation farmer um, besides you know my, my family a couple generations back farmed but um, I think I'm the first one in our family to 
to raise sheep. And uh, I appreciate the the work that you've done um, to really help the industry along. Because if it if it wasn't for the continued research that you and others have done, um, that the sheep experiment station continues to do, and and other um, both government and university organizations are involved with. I don't think the sheep industry would, would continue to, to be around. I think, you know, it all has to work together. There has to be the efficiency in production. There has to be the, the uh, research to be able to determine that and how to, to best utilize that. And, and you've been at the forefront of a lot of that. And uh, I, I think, you know, there, there are probably very few people in, uh, in, in the history of the, the sheep industry that have had, as much of an impact on so many levels as you have. And so I, I know I'm certainly grateful for, for all of your work and really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and, and share with us a lot of your knowledge. Um, is there anything Thank that. Thank you very much. I, I, pre- I appreciate what your, your appreciation. <laughs> yeah. It's well, been a pleasure working with the industry and I wish it the best. And I think 2020, uh, We'll uh, need to make some changes that was suggested way back when, and if they do, it'll be around a good while longer. Yeah. So I guess, you know, to wrap things up, and I hate to wrap things up because we could probably go on for hours and hours. Oh, I still have have a question. I'm saving. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, well, (laughs) well, we can can get to that and, um, and, and probably more questions. But like I said, we could probably go on for hours and hours more. I know I, I could keep asking zillions of questions. Um, but I, I guess, is there anything that, that we didn't cover that you would like to talk about any points that, that you'd like to make, um, things that you would like, you know, our listeners to hear? I mean, you know, we have a, like, I think Robert pointed out before, you know, we have a pretty wide variety of listeners. I mean, a lot of Katahdin breeders, but we have listeners, literally all, all the way all around the world um, in, in different places we've had our podcast listened to and, you know, from the West to, I mean, literally coast to coast and, and uh, you know, are there any thoughts that you have that, that you would like to leave different, different groups of breeders or, or just the sheep industry in general, things that you would like to share before we, before we get to Robert's question? <laughs> well, I, I have, I have a lot of respect for the objective, production and adaptation characteristics of sheep I think they can uh, they can exist probably on uh, the, the resources that will be available to them in the future as well as any species are better than most because of their adaptation and uh, I think it's a way that we exploit the capabilities and the potential that they have will depend on their future and that will leave us up to us to make those choices and i think there'll be some wise choices made on that in that in that way for the future but uh they've got a future i'm sure of that the sheep do yeah definitely all well, right appreciate, appreciate optimism <laughs> yep it's your turn <laughs> all right so uh so how you know i don't know if you got 50 60 years of sheep experience and you've you've uh, been instrumental in the polypay world uh the sheep research center 
and of course with the Katahdin breed. So, uh, so when we left the other day, I posed this question for you to be thinking about. If I'm gonna, if you're starting today, you know, July 23rd tomorrow, you're gonna wake up and say, I'm creating the perfect sheep. What is my percentages of what breed? What would you do? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd look at the genetics that's in that flock at Mark right now. And, uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with it or not, but it's it's a grazing sheep that's been that this experiment's been going on since about 2000. I'd look at that. It's got some Katahdin genetics, but it's got some others. But it's been on grass all the time, and uh, I think I think forages are key uh, for the basis of the of sheep production. Uh, I think uh, Katahdins probably need Katahdin lambs could use a little more muscling, but I don't think you want to sacrifice too much in order to get it. Uh, you might want to use some other genetics that you cross on the, on the Katahdin use to make the best lamb possible. But uh, I, th I think Katahdins have a great future. Yeah, we had the expo at Clay Center um, 2000. 15 maybe I don't remember it was the anniversary of the research center and uh, and uh -huh. it was also the hundredth anniversary of the kool-aid uh, deal because the kool-aid uh, was developed there in clay center uh, so so we got to tour their facilities and and they're doing a half Romanoff quarter white dorper and a quarter Katahdin cross yeah uh, that's the one I'm talking about yeah I'd, uh, if I were a breeder, I'd, uh, I'd get the best genetics that Katahdin has available, but uh, they're going to have to introduce some new genetics too in order to keep from inbreeding, and uh, that's where I'd go to to mix it up. All right, so now we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were you impressed with the flock that was out there? Oh, absolutely. Um, I took lots of pictures yeah. and, uh, you know, um, well, I had a lot of questions. I, I actually, uh, uh, I was sitting with Mark Dennis during one of the presentations and, uh, and they're going on about all these different crosses they're doing and they're really promoting their easy care sheep. And I leaned over to Mark yeah. and I said, did anybody tell these people we're Katahdin breeders? I mean, uh, we're going to have half our people quit and start raising this stuff. You know, somebody needs to tell this guy <laughs> that we're the Katahdins, you know, quit showing all this stuff. <laughs> no, I think, I think that I haven't seen the sheep rate recently, but uh, I can tell you that uh, had a little influence on them put, putting Katahdins in the original cross. <laughs> yeah, they're the only thing, the only downsides that I've seen to them, and I, I've been to uh, another farm out in Kansas that probably had 2,000 ewes uh, that were there, and uh, is they're small, you know, they're they're 100 pound ewes, 120 pound ewes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, it's hard for me. I, I'm I'm selling meat. Caleb is too. Uh, there's not much money selling meat at the farmers market off a hundred pound lamb. You know, because nope. it costs it costs a hundred dollars to process it, no matter 
if it weighs 70 pounds or 150 pounds. So, or 150 if you're out here. Yeah. Oh, 150 pounds of processed? Golly. So, uh, so you want more meat, you know, but at the same time, if you're selling mostly to the ethnic market, then, then those are the perfect animals, you know. Uh, so it's, it's very I think, tough. I think that's where your future market's going to be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the place in Kansas was selling, I mean, tractor trailer loads of 50-pound lambs, you know, every week. Yep. Um, yep. The range people are going to have to think about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I hope, the, hope hope we haven't confused anybody. <laughs> oh, I guarantee there's a lot of people like me that'll be listening going, oh, man, uh, got to do this. I got to add this breed here, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll be re-listening to this quite frequently. I, I have certain books that I and, and articles that I go back and and read periodically, um, and I'm sure this is going to be one of those those podcasts that I, I come back and listen to multiple times just to try to to continue to clean this information because there's been well, a lot of information you've shared. You have, you have my phone number, and you're welcome to call. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, we really, oh, really appreciate that. I've enjoyed visiting with you guys. Well, thanks yeah. for taking the time. That's for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Well, good luck. Wish you the best. Well, right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was an incredible set of podcasts um, to really just to be able to harness some of that knowledge just a, a small fraction of his knowledge um, of all of his experience in the sheep industry both from you know developing early composite hair sheep to early parasite resistance research to work at the sheep experiment station and range research and wool research um, there is so much that he's been involved in and so much of an impact he's had to be able to have him on here um, you know, he, he told me this is his first podcast he's ever come on. And so we're grateful to have that opportunity to be the first ones to interview him on a podcast and, um, just such an incredible amount of knowledge. Um, look forward to, to playing these episodes over and over again, uh, personally, just to continue to, to listen to all of his experience. Yeah, that is a great thing about technology and, and why we wanted to do this was to get it, uh, documented, to get it recorded. And, and now generations, uh, hopefully, uh, they still listen to podcasts 100 years from now, but uh, at least we got it recorded and, and uh, his knowledge will be uh, shared for generations to come. And, and I, I probably had 100 more questions to ask, so uh, maybe we can get him on later again and come up with something else to discuss and, uh, and he can do his second podcast. Yeah, no, that would be. That would be awesome if we can do that. I, I know there's there's no end of questions to be able to ask him with his amount of experience. So look forward to uh, doing future podcasts with him. And uh, if, yeah, if, if anybody, an has, comes up, anybody has questions they want to pose us on uh, on these, send us emails, podcast at sheepthings.com, you know, and uh, we'll discuss them or get with uh, some other people to discuss them. And, uh, I think we got a Q&A podcast just off of off of these groups of uh, podcasts. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, no, and, and like like uh, Robert just said, you know, if you have questions, send us an email, podcast at sheepthings.com. 
And uh, we're happy to go over those and stay tuned for future episodes coming up with more interviews. Um, we're excited to, to begin to bring an even more diverse set of, of guests on here to talk about the sheep industry and, and really to, to expand our knowledge, um, you know, as, a, as listeners to the podcast, to be able to really hear from so many different segments of the industry and no better person to, to really kick that off than Dr. Parker, who's, who's literally been involved in, in almost all aspects of the sheep industry. And so, uh, again, hope you enjoyed the podcast and stay tuned for future podcasts. Again, send us questions, podcast at sheepthings.com. Yeah, it's podcasts at sheepthings.com. And we're happy to uh, continue to answer your questions and stay tuned for more content. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.